Electricast. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you it's never too late to write your next chapter. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Transforming 45. This today is going to be a great conversation. I can feel it in my bones and I am really happy to welcome Caitlin Domner. She is a serial entrepreneur, a mom of three, and they travel the world full time. Amazing. Uh, they And they've been to all seven continents. And right now, Caitlin has a no biggie of a, of a mission. And she, that mission is to uh, bring mental wellness to the planet. And we're going to be talking about that as we move through our conversation today. So welcome to the show, Caitlin. I am so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Yeah, I love this topic. I'll I'll talk about it all the time. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I could too. So this is going to be, this is going to be a good one. So, Caitlin, to get us started, who are you and how did life introduce you to this version? Oh, that is such an amazingly existential question that feels like it is constantly in motion and fluidity. Um, You shared a little bit about the most recent version of myself, but yeah, let's see, starting out, um, I, I was... I grew up in San Diego and I will just share since we're talking about mental health, I had a long history of depression and anxiety, tried to run away from home when I was seven for the first time, tried to commit suicide when I was 12 for the first time. Um, and yeah, so that, that version of, of myself was uh, depressed and anxious. And uh, then I moved into the college self, which was the overachiever version of me where I wanted to have 18 units of honors classes while running the writing club or like the <laughs> being the editor at the writing club and having a relationship and launching the Shakespeare club and directing the theater club. Like, so overachiever for many, many years, went to Oxford university um, and got to study some amazing things there And then I decided to go get my master's degree and reconnected with my high school sweetheart, uh, who had already been through a marriage and divorce and had a kid. And then I became the stay-at-home mom version of myself and the, um, I'm going to go stir crazy because I don't know how to keep myself busy self. Uh, And that's where I went into this whole like spiral of entrepreneurial activities and trying to figure out how to make money because I had no intrinsic self-worth version of myself. And then that kind of led into the more successful, um, again, high achieving version, entrepreneurial version of myself, where for the last 14 years, I've been building and managing sales teams for people like Deepak Chopra and making them tens of millions of dollars. And I 
And then that gave me the freedom to become my nomad self. And the nomad self's like, I'm going to take my kids. and We're going to go travel the world. And then there was this moment in June of 2021 where I was sitting on a tropical beach. I had my successful businesses. I had published my books. I was married to the love of my life. I had three beautiful, healthy children. I was traveling full-time, had everybody's dream life. And I realized I was still miserable. I was still wrestling with the same anxiety and depression that I'd had since childhood. And I was like, well, how do I, how do I get out of this, right? How do I uh, declare bankruptcy? How do I file for divorce? How do I run away from my own life? And what I realized is that everything I had been doing had been a running away of sorts, um, running away from my demons and I had finally gotten to literally the other side of the planet and I had nowhere else to run. I had made everything in my external world as perfect as I could make it. And it still wasn't enough because I realized I was not enough. And it was that moment of just, oh, maybe the thing that needs to change is me. <laughs> maybe if I've tried <laughs> to make everything else perfect, maybe the thing that needs to still shift is my own heart and psychology. And so that's what sort of led me into this kind of spiritual awakening. And I'd already been always been a religious person, but did a cacao ceremony in Bali, which I swear must be the most cliche of mystical experiences ever. <laughs> me and Julia Roberts, like, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I heard God say it's safe to shine. And in that moment, it was like something just got unlocked in me. And I went through this like 90 days of just daily downloads, I call it, where I was just constantly channeling words and writing this 80 page book um, in like 80 days. And what I now call it is the ecstatic framework. But it's this idea that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And we can, things happen to us. But the things that happen to us don't actually cause emotional suffering. They might cause us physical pain. You, you get slapped by your parent, let's say. But that's not actually what causes the suffering. The suffering is actually the result of the story that we tell. Like, my parent doesn't love me, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not lovable. And it's that story that causes this emotional suffering. And that emotional suffering then becomes identity statements like, like the I am, so I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy of love, etc. And those actually dictate how we show up in the world, which then reinforces very frequently the events that we receive and perceive. So it becomes this very vicious cycle of we see what we expect to see, which reinforces our beliefs about ourselves, which causes the state of uh, suffering of anger and sadness and grief and misery and fear. And then we keep finding, going out and finding data that supports our belief system. And when I saw this, I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is what I want to focus on for the rest of my life. And so I set this mission. I was like, okay, I'm going to end emotional suffering from a billion people. <laughs> uh, how do I do that? And so I signed up for a PhD program. I'm studying somatic psychology to kind of investigate how our bodies influence our sense of happiness. So the neurobiology, our endocrine system, all of those physical things that like 
if I haven't slept, if I haven't taken my supplements, right? I have just physical routines that help with what I call mental hygiene. But then we also have things like journaling and gratitude exercises and breath work that are more the psychological side of things. So bringing these all together into a single application was the vision. So uh, the, the app is called the Magic Minute app, and we're launching it here for Mental Health Awareness Month in 2024 and terrified because it's, it's taken us a year to just get to beta testing. Um, but the idea is that inside of this app, I can pull in all of these components like the journaling, the emotion-led goal setting, the meditations, the breath work, the gratitude, all of these very simple somatic practices, we can start habituating them through daily use um, in, in the application. And so that's kind of step one of how I want to start getting the data out there. And then I'll just say for the PhD work, what I really want to do is test this with sales teams because that's my background. So I want to teach sales teams how to emotionally regulate? How do you soothe your nervous system? How do you reprogram limiting beliefs? <clears throat> how do you choose happiness? Or at least if you can't get to happiness, how do you choose gratitude, compassion, and, and faith? Because those are always in our control and they often feel a lot like happiness. <laughs> um, and so how do I teach them? And my hope is that I can prove if we do the work well and people are feeling better that they will actually do their work well and have higher productivity, profitability, all those metrics that corporations care about, because then, then I can free up money. So corporations, governments, et cetera, once I have this data set and I can prove that there is a correlation between how we feel and how we do, now we can start investing in things like mental health and uh, emotional wellness programs that are currently in that realm of kind of soft science and uh, secondary on a corporate budget line items and make it more of a primary. So that was a really long and complicated answer to your question in terms of who am I? I am, I am still all those things. Um, the, but at the end of the day, it's my, who am I is the person who is passionate about making the world a more positive place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. It is, it's a, it is a complicated question. You're right. And I, the way you moved through the different versions of yourself, I was thinking to myself, like, what is the, what is the through line here? Right. Mm. Because we often identify ourselves by the external, like what mm -hmm. are this, what are the things that are happening around me? What are the things that I am creating? What are the roles that I am currently occupying. And those are the ways that we identify ourselves, but there is yeah. a current, like an undercurrent of something. And you are, t one of the things was you said, I'm, Oh, I was always running away from something. I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, there is that through line in that story. And then when you at the end said, I am passionate, I was like, that's it. Right. Mm -hmm. That also is the through line that runs through everything, because even when things are hard, sometimes we are really passionately attached to the things that are hard or the things that are causing us pain. Um, so passion ha is a really multifaceted word, but I definitely hear that come through in your story of, mm. of passion. Mm -hmm. Does yeah, that make sense? You're right. You? Yeah, I do feel like I, emotions have always been a deep part of me. So the feeling things deeply, um, but I think growing up, they were toxic in my, 
in my household. So through Mm -hmm. high school and college, I definitely was on the stoic bandwagon. Like, how can I stuff all of these female, like feelings down? That was an ironic Freudian slip there. (laughs) Stuff all these female um, feelings. And yet, yet, yes. So uh, I do. I do think that our emotions are on the yin side of the universe. Um, And it's probably not surprising that in our society, they are distrusted and vilified and tried to be marginalized. Like, oh, don't be emotional, be rational, be, be thoughtful. Like, like, don't, don't get so feeling focused. Right. But, but that's because we come from this very masculine yang enlightenment, rationalization, patriarchal, whatever that says like, we can only trust logic. We can only trust what we can prove very materialistic worldview. And I think that the pendulum is swinging actually the other direction. Like, no, there is this whole spiritual universe that we have trouble articulating because it is almost by definition ineffable. Like it is not a left brain thing. It is a right brain thing. And we have Mm -hmm. to feel it in our bodies, in our souls. Like this is where life resides and everything else is just used to define it or explain it but it's not the thing itself. And so having a framework where my emotions are no longer inherently evil or untrustworthy or toxic or dangerous. And I've like come to realize that no, our emotions are our guidance system. They're like this compass that not only tells us when we're out of alignment, but if we know how to listen to them can bring us back into alignment. That was such a game changer. Like I was finally able to trust myself is what it really meant. Yeah, absolutely. This is timely conversation because I had this breakthrough for myself last week (laughs) where um, I realized like one of the things I really struggle with the way emotions have manifested themselves for me. And when you are a a woman at midlife, when you're talking about data, the data, you know, Mm -hmm. I have a lifetime of data that supports not being emotional. Mm-hmm. And coming out of a very academic world mm-hmm. of being logical and not using our emotions. And anytime I would be emotional, there would be a a push downwards of like, no, Lisa, yes. we don't talk about those things. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself in a space of numbness mm-hmm. that was really, really intense. I was mm-hmm. having this conversation with my husband where I said, like, I... I know that you love me, but I can't feel it right now. And the same was true with my kids. And I also recognized that that is a stage because I'm in the empty nest preset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have been numbing myself to what that is going to be when they leave. And so mm-hmm. I know I love my children and they know, and I know they love me, but I couldn't feel it. Mm-hmm. And, and I had been in this space of putting on armor to protect myself for so long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here I was all this time thinking I was wearing this armor to protect myself from the exterior world. But the truth mm. is I was wearing that armor to protect me from me. Yeah. 
Yeah. And when I am in this space of numb and not being able to feel, how can I possibly feel and know the leadership that's necessary to move forward in my life? Mm -hmm. There is absolutely a connection between your feelings and your intuition. And I don't know if that's for men as well. Um, but I know, especially for the women that I work with, right, when we are not in touch with our feelings, we are also not in touch with that magical <laughs> guidance system, uh, whether it's God, goddess, or just your higher self, like whatever you call it, we all know that there is something that says, oh, this is great. I'm excited about this. Or, oh, nope, I really don't feel good about this situation. And when we, it is, it, it feels like a societal medicating of this uh, this sensitivity, right? Because we don't have a lot of good social frameworks or containers for us to feel deeply and safely. It's usually an either or. You can be safe and shallow or deep and dangerous. And that really becomes this dichotomy for people who grew up in unsafe childhoods we will we'll choose shallow and safe every single day like <laughs> right so so if we've had any sort of trauma and in my work i've sort of come to the belief that we all have trauma that trauma is just whenever our experience tips over the edge of normalcy and it's more than our bodies can physically handle it's like an electric charge that we can't discharge and so it gets encoded into actually our own dna as well as our spiritual DNA. Like we have these ideas. And for some kids, it's like cyberbullying. And for some kids, it's like when my best friend was shot and died in my arms, like trauma gets defined differently based on what your normalcy container is and looks like. But there's for every single child, because we are very small bodies with very little contextual like ideas of what normal is supposed to look like. There is always trauma in childhood. It's just it's normal. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's kind of actually, it, it's helpful, I think, in some respects to normalize the experience of trauma, because it makes mm-hmm. us realize like, we're not alone in that a feeling of being alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, that make yeah, sense? I think that's, it makes total sense. And I think that that's really, really important to normalize trauma and not mm-hmm. normalize the fat like this fantasy that childhood mm-hmm. should be perfect. Oh yeah. That we should do everything <laughs> in our power to make childhoods for our children perfect so that mm-hmm. they never experience any suffering and I'm like that's not it. No. It <laughs> is not yeah. it. If anything that is setting kids up for like serious pain because then they don't have the tools and strategies. Yes. Yeah. Necessary to face what is inevitably going to come their way. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, like I was having a conversation with a girlfriend recently about how I have, from the time I was old enough to hold a baby, I just loved, I loved mm. babies and holding them. And for me, it was because they still have the spark of source, mm. right? Like you, you still, you can sense that closeness to that, which we have all come from. Yes. And, and that is what's so beautiful. And when you come into this human skin and you start having life experiences, of course it's traumatic because you're like, 
What? I remember this being is... infinitely powerful and unconditionally loved. What is this nightmare? Exactly. <laughs> I have limits. <laughs> I'm cold. I'm hungry. What is this nonsense? <laughs> I know. I often think that like on the days when my children were born, I remember looking at them and going, this is a real weird day for you. Like you minutes ago, you were warm and cozy and everything was fine. And then you went through this process that was not super fun. And now you're in this place and it's loud and it's cold and it's bright. And my <laughs> God, I'm sorry, but I will do everything I can to make it as, as, as smooth as possible. Mm -hmm. It's going to be bumpy, but it's going to be bumpy. <laughs> Yeah, I love that yeah. perspective because it's so true. And I've I've often thought about this. Are we here to protect our children from the world or to prepare our children for the world? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's always been preparing them for. Like I was laughing because last night at dinner, we just got home to family and my sister-in-law and brother-in-law were like, yeah, we didn't tell them that the cousins were coming because we didn't want to get their hopes up and we didn't want them to be disappointed. And I was like, Oh, I regularly put my kids through disappointment therapy. Like I think of it as inoculation for life. Like, <laughs> no, nope, yes. that didn't work out. It's going to be fine. <laughs> like suck it up, buttercup. Um, so yeah. it was just funny to see that in a, in a very recent example of how, like, I don't actually think it's my job to make my children happy. I think it's my job to give them the mental tools and worldview framework for them to self-regulate um, and to say like almost everything is normal, right? If you think about it from, I happen to have the belief that everything is always working out for us, which is actually a very helpful life principle because mm -hmm. it allows you to look back at things like traumatic events, right? Cause remember events are separate from their stories. You can look at whatever you defined as traumatic as in childhood and said, Oh, you can tell a different story about it. You can say, yes, do I prefer these horrific things happening in the world? No, I have very strong ideas of what I do and do not want for my kids. But that doesn't mean that it can't help you become a stronger or more compassionate human being, right? If you've ever seen like read Man's Search for Meaning, you know that even the Holocaust, the people who went through the Holocaust and were able to make meaning from that, who were able to, they were the ones who emerged with mental health, emotional regulation, and they ended up being advocates for change and compassion and, and humanitarian movements, right? You see the woman who got, girl who got shot in the head because she wanted to go to school, right? And now she's winning no prizes, right? Mm -hmm. So you realize like, and this is sort of, they still have source. I actually have this secret belief that we actually choose our lives before we come into them. Again, can't mm -hmm. prove it, yeah. but it's a very helpful framework for saying, okay, why would I choose this? Why would I choose a traumatic childhood? Why would I choose an abusive marriage? Why would I choose to get fired from my job? And you can, at your brain is this beautiful solution finding, answer giving machine that if you ask the right questions, it will always give you an answer. And if you ask, well, why would this happen for me? How is this serving me? your brain will automatically find ways to answer that question and say, oh, well, if you didn't have that traumatic childhood, you wouldn't have the compassion that allows you to 
want to end emotional suffering, right? If you didn't go through that mm-hmm. abusive marriage, you wouldn't be an advocate for women's rights and raising awareness for domestic violence. Like you usually like if you can find the a different story about how that thing which has caused you pain is actually making you a better human being, then the suffering around that experience goes away. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't know that I would choose it for my child, but I'm so grateful that I went through that because of who I am today, which gets you back to our first question is, who are you? And do you love the person you are now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is this is a theme that is coming up on my show, and it is the um, absolute essential skill of curiosity. Oh. Because, yes. Right. Because when we are, that's everything that you were just describing is when we approach everything from a place of curiosity rather mm-hmm. than from judgment and blame, then we oh, are yeah. asking those questions of like, okay, what, why did this happen? But not why mm-hmm. did this happen as the like, poor me, why did this happen? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> why did this happen? What, what, did I learn from it? And how am I going to use that learning to move forward? And I was having, mm-hmm. I, was, I don't know, I was thinking about this in the car the other day. And I was thinking about it in terms of the legal system. <laughs> I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this, because I was mm-hmm. thinking, you know, we really do this wrong. We really get mm-hmm. this wrong. Because mm-hmm. every person who is incarcerated was a human mm-hmm. who had a traumatic experience. And if we were to approach it from the place of mental health and well-being of why did this person commit this crime or why was this person in this space where they felt like they didn't have any other choice, it really changes how we position and see that person. Mm-hmm. Right? When we look at the humanity of the, of the person in front of us and think about mm-hmm. what do they actually need to get mm-hmm. better? Because mm-hmm. I'm a hundred percent sure um, the penal system is not it. Yeah. Well, it goes back to this idea of like there are rights and wrongs and yeah. good and evil, and we can define them with external measurements. And it's our job to protect the good people from the evil ones and ostracize them. I mean, like this has been our number one tool for evolutionary developments since we first emerged from the trees, right? So we are a pack species. And and I think this has become increasingly clear to me is that we are not, we don't independently create anything, right? We are co-creators of our reality, of our identity. If you ask somebody, who are you? It will necessarily be in relationship because there is no other way, right? Unless it's cogito ergo sum, like I think therefore I am. If you have anything after the I am, it will be in relationship to something else. And so that concept of like, we have to ostracize you. We have to kick you out of the tribe is what we've been using since campfire days. Like mm-hmm. you have broken the, the social contract. You are no longer worthy of the pack protection and you are going to go out into the wilderness and and die, right? Like that's why we have a fear of public speaking, right? Because standing out, being mm-hmm. seen, and possibly like being vilified 
means you're going to die. Like the tall poppy syndrome was definitely a thing for our Neanderthal like ancestors, right? Like you do not want to be the one (laughs) who starts going off the rails because you will get, you'll get kicked out. And we still feel that instinctually, like it's encoded into our biology to not want to rock the boat, to not want to make waves, to not want to be the one who gets kicked out of the tribe. So the penal system, back to your point, is is using mm-hmm. Neanderthalian methods <laughs> to yeah. reinforce a social contract that I think a lot of us are no longer subscribing to, right? So yes. if it's this idea that people are trying to be as good as they can be, right? And this is Socrates, honestly. I mean, this is not new. This is still 400 BC that we're having this concept that people are as good as they can be with the knowledge that they have, right? And so that's that's what I, one of the things I teach in terms of like forgiveness is everyone is always doing the best they can with wh- what they have and where they're at. Yes. And that's where the compassion piece comes in is sometimes you have to have that compassion on yourself, right? I am mm-hmm. doing the best I can on like bad mom days. Oh yeah. I am doing the best I can with what I have and where I'm at. Like, and once I take the time to do some self-care, to do some self-reflection, to hire a parenting coach, like I will do better <laughs> next time, right? Um, but it's that it's that self-love first, compassion for self, forgiveness of self. Then we can extend it to the world. And we say, okay, so let's assume that this person who ended up in jail because they killed somebody because they were addicted to drugs because their parents beat them and they were trying to find an escape. Like if we can get into that, psychology and understand those deep motivations, then we can start providing these mental health awareness tools, like training, rehabilitation experiences. Like I have this weird idea, like I want to create a prison that has flowers and plays classical music and they have to read classical literature and we have dialogues and we teach them how to have conversations. Like what if we, what Like, it's so counterintuitive. I don't think I could get money for it. But like, what if you turned prison into like a spa rehabilitation wellness experience Uh where we're reprogramming their brains to think highly of themselves so that they don't feel like they need to prostitute themselves or whatever? Like, I think we would have to start with the women inmates first, I think, because I do think pleasure is pretty important to our our psychology and our well-being. But yeah, that is that would be a very fun social experiment to see what we could shift mm-hmm. and how quickly, yeah. you know. Uh, it's interesting because I was having exactly the same thought as I was having this process. <laughs> I was like, well, we need to have spaces where they can actually heal. And, right. you know, the violence in the penal system just begets more violence. And it is, oh, yeah. you know, what you're going back to, right? Our primates. If you weren't a criminal when are- you went in. You're definitely a criminal when you get out. (laughs) Absolutely. So no wonder it's so hard to reintegrate into this society because everything that has been built in you is telling you that you are wrong and that violence is the only answer and violence Mm -hmm. in however that has manifested in your world. And so, yeah, I, I would be, I would be with you in building that space. And on a, then like, you're like, how do I get sent to prison? Right. That, well, that was that's my thing. Then. It's like, I had a, I had a, uh, a distant family member, but she had like this psychotic break and she had five kids. So I'm like, 
she got she got to leave her kids for like two weeks and I was like wait wait how do I sign up for this? <laughs> how do I get a two-week vacation like do I have to have a nervous breakdown before I'm allowed to do this uh it was just yeah. it was hysterical <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that goes back to the prevention element of it, right? Yes. Like if we were mm -hmm. actually caring for people's mental health and well-being mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. there right. is, before there's a breakdown, right? I mm -hmm. like similarly after my my second child in particular was born mm -hmm. I had a c-section I had to be in the hospital for three days and I was like this is great this is a vacation <laughs> I will stay I will stay <laughs> eventually the time comes where you're like no I do I do need to get back to my life now but it yes. is that feeling of being cared for yeah of not having to be responsible for everything at all times and knowing that someone is caring for me and yes. we all need those moments in our lives mm -hmm. and ideally it would happen on a daily basis so it doesn't mm -hmm. take a crisis or a surgery to mm -hmm. get to a place where it's like all right i will right. I, and it and it's complicated because it is there is something in the vulnerability for me of have, mm. having just had surgery where I can receive mm -hmm. care yes. because that's another thing as women. And how do we get to a space where we feel that we can receive, that we are worthy to receive care yes. without it being a forced on us by breakdown surgery, something right. that forced us into that vulnerability? Well, it's not even a, well, I think, yeah, I think you're onto something because I think it is a justification. Like I need to be sick in order for me to rest. I need to be unwell. I need to be broken. I need to be like, I need to be injured. Like I need a reason to prioritize me. And I think that is, yeah, that is sort of an epidemic. And I don't know whether it's societal in like Western modern society mm -hmm. or just anthropological, like women from the beginning of time have been the caretakers and the nurturers and, and like, it's, it's just how we're wired, right? We, we love that. And this, I think gets us back to that pack mentality, right? I don't think, I, I, I don't think we were designed to do life alone. I don't think we're particularly well suited for it. Right. And we've gotten to the point where you're like, you have one spouse <laughs> And you and that one spouse are going to go off on your own into a different city, usually, than where you were born and raised. And you are going to make humans. And no matter how many of those humans you make, you too are exclusively responsible for making sure they all end up on, in adulthood, happy, healthy, successful, right? Whereas yeah. if you realize, like, even 100 years ago, we lived on farms with multi-generational support. 200 years ago, like... Or maybe, maybe 2,000 years ago, we lived in villages where everybody knows everyone and we're all responsible for each other's offspring. You go back 5,000 years, we're in this whole little pack. Like, uh, it's not even a tribe at this point. This is just yeah. us yeah. around a campfire. Um, and so I think we have, we've gotten increasingly isolated and that burden of, I'm using child rearing because I'm right in the thick of motherhood, but it's everything. Mm -hmm. It's when we're in college, right? We we're we're like in this weird competitive environment instead of a collaborative mm -hmm. environment, right? When we're in work, right? You are responsible for your work. If you have a team, that's fine, but you better be carrying the team, not the team carrying you, or you're gonna be fired. So we have this strain, and this definitely is Western, like 
in the Eastern uh, cultures, there is much more like five generations live in one house and you are not an individual. You are only the representation of your family. And it's sort of like the opposite extreme where you're not supposed to have independent ideas and aspirations. Um, So there's definitely this, this balance, but yeah, trying to maintain mental health in Western modern society is extremely difficult. Whenever I'm traveling the world and I come back to the United States, it's like there's this blanket of spiritual smog, like the busyness, the the intensity, the anxiety, the I have to have everything in my life picture perfect because Instagram is a like very present reality is like... Mm-hmm. It's, I can literally feel it when the plane lands on this soil. It's a weird experience that, yeah, other countries don't, don't have that same pressure on us. Yeah, I know. I do know exactly what you mean. And in in, in Canada, we're not very different from you, mm-hmm. right? Our cultures are very <laughs> I'm afraid similar. we've infected you across the border. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, like California, no. the epicenter of the chaos is actively promulgating this western approach to life it is our primary export as a nation is our entertainment and our entertainment is not supporting health and wellness and community and it it yeah it really is when i go and see america reflected i'm like oh cringe it's not even americans it's like this culture of dissatisfaction materialism that I'm like, oh, I really am not proud of of what we're exporting right now. <laughs> yeah, I think you know, I think about it every time I go to Europe. In there, and and there are some of those elements as well in that mm-hmm. society and culture, and the way that their spaces are designed to facilitate community is so yes. different. Yes. Right. People aren't living in their big houses with their big yards in the in that mm-hmm. sort of form of isolation. So there are parks and spaces mm-hmm. developed or implemented all throughout communities to provide space for people to come together. Yeah. And we are missing those community spaces. So mm-hmm. there are, you know, there are all the societal structures. There are all that are that are barriers, but even down to the space and the places that we live in that make community connection more challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fact that I have to get in a car, I have to get into a metal bottle bubble and like drive to my friend and go into her wooden bubble, like in order to see her, like is a strange Mm -hmm. thing, right? It is. Um, so yeah, we we go from little bubble to little bubble and in a continuous series and we think this is normal when it's yeah. it hasn't been that long since we were all like sleeping under the same blankets under the same canopy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think about the shift in the way I feel when, you know, I'm sitting along the canal in Venice, Mm. my feet hanging over the edge and we're like, you know, people on either side and engaged in conversation with, with people I don't know, but because we're Mm -hmm. all in this space, it allows for connection. And Mm -hmm. like going back to our primate selves again, like you said, we are meant to be in community. So 
Yeah. So are are there elements of your app and your plan that are built around um, helping to redevelop that sense of community? Mm, I love that question. So inside the app, uh, we did decide to in like do a posting kind of like a little bit of a Facebook, um, but the purpose Mm -hmm. is gratitude. So we call it the gratitude wall. Uh, So what are you grateful for? Um, And you can start building relationships, but really I view the app as just the toe in the door. I really want it to create this as a hybrid experience where you start with the app, but then you come to meetups either on zoom or in person. And I think that that I I don't know. I've had feedback that, no, if people want an app, they just want an app. If they want coaching, they'll go somewhere else. But like, I love this hybrid of like, no, the app is really just a place where you start the conversation, but the deep work is done in our weekly meetings or in our quarterly retreats, or like you can do monthly one-on-ones and like just giving them a using it as an entree point for people who are still new to this world. I'm, I'm deep in life coaching. Like everybody I know and their brother is a life coach in my, in my circles right now. <laughs> so I am like super deep in it, but I realized like there are still people who have never even thought of life coaching, who have never experienced somebody just holding space for them to authentically look at their life and say, am I in love with who I am and how I'm showing up? And if I'm not, how do I start bringing myself into alignment? So the idea is that we will have people who are certified in the ecstatic way there to create those sacred spaces for you to do the processing. Because again, we can't do it alone. I, I first I was like, oh, this is so great. I've got this beautiful rubric. Now I can just coach myself through it. It doesn't work. I actually like I I can journal myself through it, but it takes me hours or I talk to a friend and like if that friend knows my methodology and they can say like, actually, I don't think that's true. What's actually true in less than 15 minutes, they can snap me out of it. And that's, that's what's amazing is like, I have spoken with people who have had like limiting beliefs for a decade and I talk to them and in less than 15 minutes, we can clear it up. Now I can't take everybody from like a two to a 10 on the happiness scale in a single session, but I can go from a two to an eight, like a two to a six, right? I can get some sort of progress. And then it's just about the habituation. It's just how do you constantly start thinking about your thoughts? And metacognition is a challenging executive function for the best of the mature adults, right? So I'm not saying this is going to be an easy thing for us to master, but when you do find yourself in a state Uh, that doesn't feel great. And so if you think about your emotions as like a spectrum and there's like the uncomfortable, I'll call them. A lot of people are like negative emotions. They're not negative. Like the E, the, the empty gas tank notification on your dashboard is not for evil, right? It's for empty, right? So we want to make sure that we recognize that these aren't bad emotions. They are simply feedback mechanisms So when you're feeling afraid, when you're feeling angry, when you're feeling despondent, right? These are the uncomfortable emotions. And then we can work our way up to neutral, like boredom and contentment are sort of these intermediary uh, zones where like, huh, okay. And sometimes apathy is exactly what we need to get to, right? When I'm working with people who've been in a lot of suffering, like just numbness 
is a win, right? If we can just get rid of the active suffering and get them to neutral, wonderful. I'll get there if I can. But then we go into the more pleasant emotions, like happiness, joy, gratitude, faith, trust, like all of these ones that feel better to us. And we can just start telling a story, like, and it's just a matter of looking at like, why, what am I feeling? So give the emotion a name, if at all possible. Brene's Brown's Atlas of the Heart is amazing for expanding your emotional vocabulary. Um, and then once you give it a name, then you can say, well, what got me here, right? When did I last feel good? And how did I get here? Now, if it's just ennui and you're like, my whole life has sucked for so long, it's, I don't even know. <laughs> That's going to take <laughs> us some time. But usually yeah. it's like, oh, I am feeling icky because that person said this thing. And then I meant that I, I interpret that to mean this thing and that thing makes me feel icky. And then we go back and say, well, how else could we have interpreted that? Could she just have been having a bad day? Could she have just been a big fat meanie head as we say in our family? Like, and we just have to give her some love. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, she's doing the best she can with what she's got and where she's at. And I just get to with love, release that and separate, recognize her experience of reality is not my experience of reality. And I can create a beautiful little boundary wall between our psychological experiences and I don't have to own her stuff. Um, right. <clears throat> and then, and then we say, actually, what is true about myself is that I am generous. I am kind. I am creative. I am like reinforcing what you know to be true about yourself and living in that. Okay. <sighs> now I'm back in a state of like, at least contentment, maybe appreciation, possibly excitement right? And we can start moving that dial and just trying out different stories until we get the emotional response that we're looking for. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's actually straight out of the Ontario kindergarten curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you ever needed to know, you learned in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. Our full day kindergarten oh. curriculum is based in knowing and naming and then acting. Oh, and I love this. Yeah, it's really, it's a really beautiful, like me getting nerdy about curriculum. I do love these things when they are, but when they are right. really thoughtfully crafted and created with human heart and capacity at the center. Because the other piece of the tenant of that is that humans are born capable, mm. right? We are all, we are strong and we are capable and we can do these things and we learn how to know and name and then act. Mm -hmm. And it's just, so I have real hope for these young humans who are, who are coming up in our systems now, who are going to have a few more tools than maybe we did. And yeah. I'm really grateful to you for doing this work. It's uh, mm. the most important thing anybody can do at this juncture of time. I firmly believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yep. That's I'm on board. <laughs> so, um, thank you so much for being here today. I will make mm. sure that your app and all of your contact information is uh, linked in the show notes. So everybody check mm. out Caitlin's work because it's really, really exciting. And thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for joining me, Lisa.
Thank you for joining me on this transformative journey. Your support means the world. If you resonated with our conversation and want to uplift the Transforming 45 community, here's what you can do. Connect with me about how you can reclaim your own magic. Check the show notes for all the ways you can find me. Subscribe and share. Hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you found value here, share it with friends, family, and anyone seeking inspiration. Leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your words can make a significant impact and help others find their way to these transformative stories. Join the conversation on social media platforms. Follow us on Instagram at LBoat. You can also find me on Facebook and TikTok. And if you know someone whose story could inspire others, reach out and let me know. I love connecting with diverse voices that carry the power to transform lives. Remember, your support fuels my mission to share authentic stories of transformation. Thank you for being part of the Transforming 45 family. Until next time, keep shining your light and embracing your journey. podcast leadership is a people business that's the philosophy of your podcast host john rennie as a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate america before starting his own manufacturing business he knows that leadership matters matters. deep leadership is real world actionable leadership advice from john and his expert guests Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric acid.